to see you. Good to see all of you. I just thought of something. I'm like, you know, lately we've had you know, folks who are coming for the first time to Thrive Church, and I never introduced myself. My name is David. I serve on the pastoral staff. I'm glad that you're here. I really am. So, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Hope you got a bagel and some coffee when you walked in. Anyway, uh, before I get rolling here, I want to mention a couple of things uh, very briefly. First of all, this last week, on Friday, we wrapped up our soccer camp, which was our kind of uh, substitution for vacation Bible school. And can I just tell you right now, it was awesome. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. We had about 30 kids who were there, uh, which, was, which was great for the first time of doing this. Um, for a church plant our size, too, it was kind of like, uh, oh my goodness, you guys are so young, and yet you're able to pull this off. And we're like, uh-huh, yes, we are. <laughs> So uh, if you participated in that, would you just raise your hand? Because we had a couple of people who, yeah, some of the kids back there and, yeah, and some of the coaches. Thank you. Uh, and there was light. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Gina's brother, um, Austin, came in with a group of guys. They knocked it out of the park. I'm just going to tell you, things moved. The kids were having fun. Uh, between Pastor Dan and Gina and Lisa and myself, I think we talked to a dozen different parents and just kind of connected with them and found out about their kids and whatnot. And it was just, it was just a really cool week. And we'd been um, looking forward to doing this picnic on Saturday, and we we're watching the weather because it is Oklahoma, and it is the springtime. We opted to, um, to not do the, the picnic yesterday, and then I was out driving around going, <laughs> come on, right? Anyway, so we're going to do the picnic um, probably sometime in July-ish when it's super hot out. Just kidding. Uh, so keep, uh, keep your eyes open for that. We're going to do, we're going to do something for, um, for a picnic, and then we're going to invite all those kids to come back and their families too if they, if they want to give, a, give us another chance to interact with them. So uh, anyway, for those of you who participate, participate in that, thank you. It was, it was a great event, and uh, the kids had a great time, and nobody got hurt, like seriously hurt. <laughs> so I think there was a couple soccer balls to the face, but you know, that's kind of to be expected. So anyway, uh, speaking of kids, quick announcement, um, we finally found um, somebody to uh, come in and be our children's ministry director, and she's here today, Shana Silverman. Shana, would you raise your hand? There she is. Yep. We're thrilled that she joined our team and that today's her first day. It's awesome. And um, so if you haven't met her, you really need to. So make sure you go up and, and say hello. So thank you for being here. All right. Now, I'm going to start. What? What's the matter? Huh? Shana. I said Shana. Shana Silverman. Shana. Yes. Ron, need to pay attention. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that later. I know I am. I'm just going to. Okay, so from the ridiculous to the sublime now. <laughs> just kidding. Um, today I'm starting a brand new series uh, called Sunday School. Now, <clears throat> for, for, for those of you who grew up after me, um, we didn't used to have this thing called kids' church. We all went to Sunday school, right? And in Sunday school, um, there was this cutting-edge technology because, brothers and sisters, you have not seen the Red Sea parted until you've seen it on flannel graph. Okay? Can I get an amen from the church? That's right. 
the flannel graph. I'll never forget the first time I saw that. And it just, oh my gosh, it came alive. And I really liked the soldiers because they had spears and shields and all kinds of cool stuff like that. But one of the things that I've noticed over the years is the fact that <clears throat> there are certain stories that are kind of staples in Sunday school, at least as I remember growing up, uh, probably because they were the easiest flannel graphs to reproduce. That's my guess. I'm just saying. Um, but some of those stories that we all kind of know, for whatever reason, you don't hear a whole lot of, about them in big church, right, in, in, in the, in, within the, the, the confines of the Sunday morning worship. And I'm not sure really why that is, but I think what happens is that we take the concepts in those great stories and we simplify it for the kids. We package it in such a way that, that kids can understand. And for whatever reason, we avoid the, those stories as we get older because we think we know them already because we'd heard them multiple times as we grew up in Sunday school. Does that make sense? And what, what I think often happens is that we avoid, we don't really avoid them, but we often overlook the fact that there are some details in that story and that there might be some deeper truths that we, we can dig out of them. Uh, and, and we don't want to avoid them because we think we know them. We want to revisit them again and to see if, if there's something else we can learn. Because if, if nothing else, the more that I do this, the more that I realize that the word doesn't change, but I change. And when I change, I see new things in the text. Does that make sense? Maybe you've experienced that yourself. It's a passage you've read a hundred times. It's like, oh my gosh, I've never noticed that little detail before. Why? Because you changed. And, be, and because of that, you are looking at it through a new set of lenses, right? And the other thing that keeps coming um, back um, in, in mind uh, to me as I kind of walk, walk through this is that, remember, my fundamental premise is always when we open up the Bible, we are tourists. Because it is a different culture, and it is a written at a different time to a different group of people than we are. And so there are some details within that text that are very specific to that day and age. And we need to understand those, those details in order to draw out the right meaning. Does that make sense? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Yeah, I think it's an important thing for us to do because the further away that we get from the time and place of that initial event, the, the murkier, the cloudier the actual lessons are. And so we want to we wanna kind of start digging that thing um, up a little bit more and, and re-examining the things that we know. Not the simplified Sunday school version, but rather the, the bigger issue. And... and I thought what we would do is we'd kind of revisit some favorites, some favorite stories. And um, I, I want to suggest that in some of these favorites, we may have missed some of these details. And it's not like we're teaching the kids something wrong or that we, we learned it the wrong way. That's not what I mean at all. But I think we need to take another run at these things with fresh eyes. Okay, so Sunday School is the name of the series, and we're going to look at old favorites through fresh eyes. And today, we are going to start with David and Goliath. <clears throat> now, how many of you, when as soon as I say that, get a VeggieTales picture in your head? Dave and the Giant Pickle, right? Who will fight me? Right? Yeah, David and Goliath. Uh, this happens to be one of my favorite stories because of the name of the main character, as you can imagine. 
when I was uh, in the third grade, that's what made it very cool because my friends were like, he's got your name. Yes, I know, isn't that cool? Yeah. So, David and Goliath, classic tale of the underdog. And this is one of those stories, or at least this is one of the phrases that has made its way into popular culture, especially in sports. A David and Goliath kind of game, right? And uh, who's going to defeat the giant, whoever that might be. And uh, the other place you'll see this occasionally is in business. <clears throat> in fact, I had a friend of mine, I, I'm trying to remember all the details, but I think a friend of mine told me that he was preaching on David and Goliath and there was a businessman in his congregation who was a relatively new Christian who came up to him afterwards and said, I never knew that was in the Bible. He just thought it was a business parable that somebody had written at one point. And, and, and what's interesting to me is, you know, we kind of giggle about it, but the fact of the matter is, is that biblical literacy is probably a lot lower now than it used to be. And so why wouldn't they think that? And so we, we've seen this notion go into popular culture, and so we kind of want to take a look at this through some fresh eyes. <clears throat> so we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. If you have an iPad or a, a, a smartphone, you can plug that in. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we find this particular story. And my, my game plan for today is that we're going to kind of read through this. I'm going to make some comments along the way, and then I'm going to finish with some, um, with, with some thoughts about this. So I'm going to kind of start and stop a little bit. So you might want to have this open in your Bible, and you might want to turn off the voice reading it to you. That's great, especially if they have an English accent, then it's even better. So, all right, Uh, first Samuel, it's amazing I get anything done, I swear. Okay, first Samuel uh, chapter 17, we're going to begin with verse number one. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah, they pitched camp at Ethis Damim between Soka and Azekah. There's that seminary education. I'm so glad. No idea if those are the right pronunciations, though. All right, verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, and the valley... uh, Uh, with the valley between them. Okay, let me hit the pause button right there because there's some geography here that's going to be very, very helpful. Remember, we're trying to orient ourselves as tourists to what's going on. Let me have this next slide. Hopefully, you can see this. This is a map of Israel, and you'll notice the Mediterranean is the big blue on the left, and then on the right, you've got the Dead Sea and... um, you know, part of the Jordan, at least, this is kind of the southern, southern part. There are three main areas, or actually four main areas in Israel. Uh, the first part in the orange there is the Negev. That's on the southern border, and it's basically wilderness or desert. It doesn't come into play in our story today, but it's helpful to know because we often see that uh, in a lot of the Old Testament stories. This kind of helps you orient yourself geographically. Also, uh, you have along the Mediterranean Sea there, that's called the Coastal Plain. That makes sense. It's in blue. And this area was occupied mostly by Philistines. 
Philistines as a group of people were uh, originally from Crete. They are called sea peoples. And they uh, are Phoenicians in some way. Uh, sometimes uh, there's a, a relationship there between those two groups. And uh, they were known for being um, uh, seafaring explorers, but they occupied this entire um, coastline and they were very often at war with Israel. Now, on the eastern border, kind of in the pink there, it's called the hill country or um, the mountainous region, and that's where the, the bulk of um, Israel, uh, Israel's cities were located, including uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jericho, all names in the Old Testament that you might recognize. They're all kind of along this eastern border. Now, in between the, the mountains and the coastal plain, you have an area called the Shephelah. And the best way to describe the Shephelah is a series of mountains and valleys that give passageway from the coastal plain to the upper cities. There was no way to actually invade Israel without going through the Shephelah, okay? And so what we have here is in, the, in our opening lines is we have the Philistines invading through the Shephelah and Saul, the king of Israel, gathers his armies, meets them in a particular valley. Why? Because it's a bottleneck. Okay? Strategic position. However, something interesting happens. Next slide. This is the picture of the Valley of, of Elah. And for whatever reason, um, my spell checker made it the Valley of Elan. I'm not sure why that is. Anyway, uh, Valley of Elah. And um, let me come back here. Hopefully, I don't get a whole lot of feedback. But um, basically, the Philistines occupied this hill, and on this hill was where Saul and his armies were, and there was actually a small creek or river that ran through it. This is a more of a modern uh, version of it because you can see the highway that did not exist at the time. Okay, <laughs> that's a new thing, right? So, but between those two hills. Now, here's the thing. Think about this. If you know anything about military strategy, he who holds the high ground holds the advantage. So you're going to take your army and you're going to find the highest ground and that's what you're going to hold. The problem is, is that when you're in a valley, the other army is holding the high ground on the other side of the valley. So whoever makes the first step has got to go into the valley and then climb their way up towards the enemy, which is basically suicide. Do you see that? So here we have one army on one side, another army on the other side, and we got a good old-fashioned Mexican standoff. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, we have stalemate here. Do you see that? This is a big deal. Now, to be honest, this is also one of Saul's first tests. Not his only test, some that occurred, but this is a big one. This is one that Saul probably needs to win. And here he is, camped out, looking across the field of the Philistines, and nobody wants to take the first step, and yet nobody's going home. Imagine that. So what happens? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath, one of the cities on the coast, <clears throat> came, out, uh, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. 
On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? (laughs) Mm, Gee, I don't know. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Verse 11, On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I want you to think about this. You got a stalemate. Something's got to break up the logjam, and so... A common way of doing that is to do one-on-one personal combat. Champion of one army, champion of another. There's movies about this, right? It came from the Bible. Surprise, surprise. So here we have it. And it's not just any warrior that comes out, okay? It's a big guy. I mean, in fact, the it says nine feet tall. Uh, the actual... Uh, measurement in the, in the Hebrew is in cubits, so he could have been anywhere between seven and ten, 10 feet tall. I don't care. The guy's playing for the NBA, right? I mean, we're talking about a big brother here. And he comes out, and not only that, he is armed to the teeth. I mean, think about this. I mean, I, I, I don't know how much a shekel weighs, but I have to believe that's a lot of shekels, okay? I mean, we're talking about some heavy equipment here. And he's, and he's ready to go, and so he... He makes this, this, this challenge to Israel. Now, what's really interesting is that the ancient rabbis had a field day with this. In fact, there's some of the ancient rabbis in the Talmud who suggest that Goliath made his challenges specifically in the morning and the evening just to disrupt the Israelites' prayers. He was a mean man, <laughs> okay? Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the ancient rabbis said about him. They didn't like him at all. So, as we kind of move along, what we find out is that David, this, this, uh, this kid that we know, at least we were introduced to him a few chapters before, you know, he's doing his thing. He's, his brothers are all off in the battle, and, and he's got to tend the sheep. Now, how many uh, of you have teenage boys who would like to be tending sheep when there's something exciting going on, right? Poor David. Finally, his dad brings him in and says, okay, you need to bring some supplies to your brothers because remember, at this time, there's no standing army. Israel has just moved from the period of the judges and is now moving into a monarchy, so it's not like Saul maintains a large army. He's actually pulling volunteers from all over Israel, and they have to supply themselves. So David goes off to the camp, brings some foods, and a little sibling rivalry starts with his brothers. Imagine that. And David hears this challenge, and he's kind of miffed. He's a little ticked off at Goliath, but I think he's even more ticked off at the Israelites. Like, come on! Take this guy on. 
And they're all looking at him going, oh, you take him on. So David says, okay. Brash enough to do it. And he volunteers and he goes before Saul. Let's pick up the story in verse, uh, let's see what I got. Um, yes, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. I really like that. Like, now they're used to this, right? His usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Well, yeah, because he's going to beat them up, right? So David hears this, and he, he goes to Saul, and he, he begins to make a pitch because he says that he'll go out and he'll fight the giant. Let's pick it up in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant, meaning me, will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. Well, yeah, he's a giant. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God." The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Whew. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Because <laughs> at this point, what, what options does Saul have? Nobody else is picking up the gauntlet. Nobody else is going to do this. And he's like, okay, he's got some courage, maybe he'll survive this, we might as well. I'm not going to go out and fight him. I don't have another champion, so we'll, we'll see if we can go with a hot hand here. In verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. And I get the sense that he's tripping all over the place. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch <clears throat> of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Okay, let's hit the pause button right there, because this is really interesting. Because notice the thing that, that David does. David talks about his own experience. No, it's not warfare, but it's still dangerous and here's the, the interesting part. The Lord was with me. And he makes that very clear that this is really for him about, about God. And here's this Philistine defying the armies of the living God. That irritates him a lot. And then in verse 40, when this thing starts picking up, this is where it gets really interesting. So stick with me here. So he goes down and he chooses five smooth stones. <clears throat> Now, there's some, uh, quite a bit, a bit of speculation on why David chose five stones. Some of it uh, has to do with the fact that apparently Goliath had four brothers that we read about in other parts of the text. I don't know if that's true. I think the guy was just a good boy scout and was being prepared. 
Because if I'm going to miss him once, I'm, I'm certainly not going to go into battle with just one, one bullet in my magazine. I want to have a few. <laughs> hey, if I can get off a few more shots, that's probably a good thing. So I think he was just being prepared, although there is some speculation that there were some, some brothers, giant brothers. Can you imagine that grocery bill in that household? My goodness. All right, verse 40, um, and he approached the Philistine. Verse, uh, verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. So he didn't like the way he looked. But let me make a quick little comment here. There's an interesting word. The word is ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y. Ruddy means red. Now, what does that got to do with, you know, he was a young, kind of teenage boy, and he was ruddy. What does that mean? Well, if we look throughout the, the Old Testament text, ruddy is often used to describe manly men. Ruddy means that they'd been outside an awful lot. They had uh, a ruddy complexion, largely because it had been kissed by the sun, so to speak. In fact, when you look at ancient Near Eastern pottery, men, you can tell on the pottery, are red and women are yellow. And because the artistic work wasn't so great, that's how they would determine on the pottery who is male and who is female. In fact, what an interesting note, um, when we read about the, uh, the Hebrew patriarch Jacob, he is described as being yellow, meaning he wasn't manly. Now, you can take that to mean whatever you want it to mean, but he was clearly not his brother who was ruddy. So when we talk about David being a teenager, yeah, that's true, but he's a strong teenager. I mean, he's built himself, okay? So when we see this word ruddy, it's the ancient text saying to us something a little bit different. We're not talking about junior asparagus here, okay? I want you to think about that. You probably got the kid who's playing linebacker for the local high school, okay? <clears throat> That's what ruddy means. It's a euphemism for manly or strong or powerful. Let's keep going. So he sees this handsome young man, and he despised him, so he insults him. He said to David, am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Verse 44, come here. Come here, boy. <laughs> come here. And I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now, quick note, when he talks about giving flesh, sometimes we sanitize the Bible. In this case, he's probably talking about David's manhood. Okay? I mean, this is, this is nasty stuff. He is trash talking here. Keep that in mind. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Now he's not being nasty here. He's, he's making a promise. Today I will, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You know, you, you want to play this game? Okay, that's fine. But please understand, I'm not just going to worry about certain parts of you. I'm going to leave your whole body for them. 
And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. That's good stuff, isn't it? It's exciting. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. Oh boy, does that make great for great cinema, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a familiar story, and we've, we've read this over and over again. He gets victory, yay! But what I want to suggest to you today is that what we believe about this story might be wrong. Or, or maybe a better word is, maybe we're misunderstanding some things. And I came across uh, this guy. His name is Malcolm Gladwell, an interesting fellow. He writes for The New Yorker. And he wrote a book called David and Goliath, and he's done a series of, of uh, videos and TED Talks about this and... Um, the point of his book kind of goes in a different direction, but he did quite a bit of research on David and Goliath, and from what I understand, kind of rediscovered his own faith, which I think is relatively interesting. And he makes um, some, uh, I think, helpful observations about the story that I'm kind of picking up on and then uh, just adding some of my own commentary to it. And, And I think I want to start here is that I think the first person that we misunderstand is Goliath. We misunderstand Goliath because we think of him as this giant, and of course he is a formidable opponent. I mean, he's eight, nine feet tall. I'm sure he's got long arms and he's got big weapons. But there are some puzzles within the text. There are some things here that just kind of you you wonder about. And the first one is that in almost every case, when he is moving, it says that he's being led by his shield bearer. Isn't that interesting? Now, in, in, in those days, if you were um, an officer or if you were uh, a royalty or if you were a champion of some type, you often had somebody to help you carry your stuff around, which is really nice. Um, and so he would have a shield bearer with him, but it always says that he's being led by the shield bearer, which is interesting. The other thing is, is that David's coming down from the mountain and, and you know, from the other side of the valley, and he's at the bottom of the valley. He's getting ready to do combat here, and it seems like it takes him a while to recognize David coming down. It wasn't like he noticed he was young far away, but as he got closer and closer and closer, he, he finally sees David, sees the kind of person he is, and then he curses him, right? And then he says something else really interesting. Do you come at me with sticks? But he only had a staff in his hand. So why would it be plural, sticks? And then he says this. He says, come to me. Come to me. His type of combat is slugfest. Let's duke it out right here, my armor against your armor, my arm against your arm. Let's slug this out. You come here to fight. Now, what's interesting is that giantism in general 
is uh, medically called uh, acromegala. And what it is, basically, is a small benign tumor on the pituitary gland. And it causes that pituitary gland to secrete growth hormone. In almost all cases of giantism, of acromegala, is due to this little tumor on a pituitary gland. How many of you remember the 1980s wrestling sensation Andre the Giant? And star, and star of the Princess Bride, right? <laughs> it was, right? He had acromegala, found out later, a little tumor on his pituitary gland, which caused him to be so big. Now, what we also know is that where that little tumor is located on that gland, <clears throat> there's also another side effect that often happens. It causes profound nearsightedness and double vision. Isn't that fascinating? So it wasn't just because the shield bearer was there. Goliath couldn't really make it down the hill by himself. He needed somebody leading him. Which makes perfect sense. If you're the biggest guy in the battlefield, you plant your feet, everybody's going to come to you. I don't have to go chasing anybody because I'm the biggest target out here, right? So he's used to, you come here, we're going to duke it out, I'm going to beat you, and then I'm going to go on to the next person. So no wonder he's sitting there, you come to me. Number one, I can't see you. Number two, I'm used to this. I've been doing this a while. Everybody comes to me. And here he is on the battlefield and saying, saying all of this. He is suited for close, heavy combat. And he's very good at it. He's got the armor to prove it. And I think the second person we misunderstand here is David. It's not just Goliath, it's David. I think we misunderstand him. Why do we insist on calling him an underdog? Well, I mean, he's a teen, and he's versus, you know, fighting a giant. He's a shepherd fighting a warrior. He's a little guy against the big guy. He's got a staff and sling versus these kind of advanced heavy weapons. I mean, it's made of bronze, right? Maybe we need to start there. Let's talk about a sling for a second. First of all, a sling is not like a slingshot. Because okay? that would mean we'd have to have the kind of technology where we could pull something back that would bring it forward. So it's not kind of like a wrist rocket that you can get from you know, Bass Pro Shop. It's not like that. Sling is actually a pouch with two long cords. You put a rock in it, you whip that sucker around like this, and you get it going and let it fly. It's interesting to note <clears throat> couple of details. First of all, David goes to the stream and he pulls out five, what kind of stones? Smooth stones. Why? So it doesn't get hung up in the pouch, right? You want it to be smooth. It also says stones, it doesn't say pebbles. Because the average slinger would sling a stone that was about the size of a baseball or softball. In fact, they've uncovered, this is really funny, they've uncovered um, some projectiles for slingers in ancient Greece that actually have Greek words on it that, that say things like, catch this. <laughs> Which reminds me of the bombs in World War II. They would write notes to Hitler on, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, they were doing that back in ancient Greece. Like, here, catch, you know, kind of a thing. 
But these are, I mean, a fairly good-sized projectile. In fact, there was a ballistics expert who did a series of experiments with a sling and found out that the stopping power of a, of a crack sling, slinger, uh, the stopping power they could generate was equivalent of a 45 caliber pistol. Now, let me, let me explain that to you. That will put you on your keister very quickly, okay? And here you've got a stone that size moving with that much force, and it's coming at you. Think about that for a moment. Something that big. And also, slingers had to be strong. Remember, David was ruddy. If you've got a stone that size and you need to get some speed on that, you've got to have some arm strength, right? In fact, I had one professor who told me that, you know, he's the kind of guy who has the bicep, he can't even scratch his head because he gets in his own way. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes for a great story. But he had to be very strong and able to, to sling that thing, and he had to be practiced to have the kind of accuracy to hit somebody in the forehead, I don't care how big that target is, that's a, that's a pretty small area, and he's got a fairly good-sized stone, but he's got to make that distance and get to it, so he's got to have some practice with it. It is a devastating weapon. Make no mistake about it, and it's especially devastating against <clears throat> nearsighted swordsmen at close range, right? <laughs> Relatively good. He runs up to the battle line, Boom! I mean, he's taking a shot at Goliath at a fairly close distance. And I think we, sometimes we, we, we look at, at the story and we think big guy, little guy, but it really isn't just that. There's more to this story. And there's an, there's an innovation here that I think is important. You see, both Goliath and, frankly, King Saul presumed that there was only one way to fight. Slugfest. Duke it out, feet on the ground, hammer at each other, and let's see who gives out first. And David has no presumption that that's the way he has to fight. He's had to deal with bears and lions, and he doesn't have any armor. He still took them out. So there's more than one way to fight. There's an innovation here. There's thinking, if you'll pardon the pun, outside of the box. There's more to it than what's going on. So, my question is, why do we insist that David is an underdog? The text doesn't seem to support that. In fact, the text seems to indicate that Goliath is horribly outmatched. Now, of course, he's strong, but he's got no chance here. And so, I believe that the passage is more than about the little guy beating the big guy. It's more about more than a sports analogy, it's more than a business parable. I think there's something else going on here. I think the passage is about God. What's in the Bible, duh. Yeah, hang on. Goliath appears to be unstoppable. And yet when he stands in front of Israel, he's defying Israel. He makes no mention of God whatsoever. This is mano a mano, right? That kind of a thing. This sort of, it's got nothing to do with God. And when David walks up to the field, what does he do? I come at you in the name of the Lord. Because David would lose that slugfest. He's going to lose it. There's no question about it. But God is on his side and he innovates. He fights as God has made him able. So here's the lesson. Start where you are, do what you can, use what you have, and allow God to take up the rest.
right? There's something else here, though. Something quite puzzling. Frankly, it's a little troubling to our Christian sensibilities. At least it is to mine. There's a missing element that should be there. Have you noticed it yet? David didn't pray first. That bothers me. Because I've been taught, you're supposed to pray about everything first. David doesn't pray first. I mean, I, I know the circumstances warrant it. He's going to die if he doesn't get this right. Why wouldn't you pray about that first? And we know that David knows how to worship. He's a poet. He's a musician. So we know he's capable of doing it. What gives here? What's going on? Why wouldn't... Aren't you going to pray about that? <laughs> if I were Saul, that's what I would be doing. But instead, David does something very important. Verse 37, he remembers. He remembers that it was God who allowed him victory over the lion and the bear. And so the past that he had gives him confidence in the present. If God did that then, then I know God can do that now. And the second thing he does in verse 45 is David acknowledges that God is there now. I come against you in the name of the Lord. So the confidence that I had in the past, or the the experience I had in the past gives me confidence, and that confidence gives me faith in the future. Do you see that? Now, it's always a good idea to pray. So please don't walk out of here going, well, Pastor David doesn't think that we need to be praying about stuff. Mm -mm, No, you're missing the point. Don't. It's a good idea to pray. But there are some circumstances that require bold action more than they require solitary contemplation. Sometimes that's what we need. And understand that that David's confidence and faith came from his relationship with God that he cultivated tending sheep. That's where it came from. I know that this is the relationship I have with God. It didn't somehow magically appear in that moment. It was something that had been built up over a period of time. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm guessing in a room this size, it's very easy for all of us to begin to compare ourselves to David in one way, shape, or form. It's very easy for us to go, well, I know I'm not in a sheep field, but if you... Have you been in my cubicle? Have you been in my job? If you only knew, and and we we begin to compare ourselves, both positively and negatively. Don't do that. Because David's journey is not your journey. You have no business comparing yourself to him. You may not be called to fight Goliath. Praise God, (laughs) okay? You may not be called to do that. You may have some other kind of calling in your life. And please understand, David was an amazing warrior, brilliant fighter, commander of, of, of men. He was a great leader, a great king, and an absolutely lousy father. His kids were a hot mess. And yet, God still used him. You have no business comparing yourself to David. You need to do as we said before. 
Start where you are. Do what you can. Use what you have. His journey is not your journey. You got to deal with yours, not David's. So is he an underdog? I don't think so. Are there deep truths here? Oh my gosh, yes. Plenty of things that we can pull out of this passage about courage and, and where God fits, but it all comes down to, I think, this idea, ultimately, that it's about the relationship that we have with God that we build over a period of time, and for some people, it takes longer than others. But the point is, is that what we experienced with God in the past gives us confidence so that we can have faith in what God's gonna do in the future. And if you think about this in your own life, think about some of the things that you face, some of the decisions that you've made, the best thing you could do is to look back and say, oh wait, remember that time when God did? It's like, oh yeah. That's why you have to share stories with one another. This is why we, we call it testimony. We want to give the testimony because if God did that for you, maybe God will do something like that for me. Yeah, that's what this is all about. It's mutual encouragement. Something to think about. I don't know where you are today. I don't know um, what's going on in your life. Um, But I'm going to take my stool and I'm going to go sit back there. And if there's something you want to talk about, I'd love to chat with you, pray with you. Um, Promise I won't ask you uncomfortable questions. But... I think that if you've got one of those things, one of those issues, one of those struggles or something that's on the journey, you probably ought to share it with someone and maybe together we can have some confidence on the little thing.